courage is to act despite knowing that the outcome will be failure. That's what courage is. In 2014, when we first published our YouTube video, I was 42 years old. I was sitting there thinking like, isn't this content game for people who are younger, who are better looking? What am I doing here? The three biggest drivers to whether or not somebody's gonna make a decision to work with you or not to work with you is around money, around schedule, and around scope. Courage is the ladder to overcome the obstacle. It's the shovel to dig yourself a new path. That's the bridge, it's the ladder, it's the rope, whatever it is you need. Can you think of some scenarios that you see when working with creatives where there's obvious opportunity, but they don't see it because they're blocked by fear or some other emotion? Yeah, I'll tell you one of the biggest one. Welcome to the Creative Courage Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Essam, and today, I have the privilege of talking with the one and only Chris Doe. Now, if you've never heard of Chris and somehow you've been hiding in a cave for the last five or six years, let me tell you a little bit about him and why I am so excited about this conversation. So Chris ran a successful design studio or agency for over 22 years and had a combined gross billing of over $80 million. So he had a team, he had massive clients, and that studio was an incredible success. He's an award-winning, an Emmy award-winning designer, and now is the founder of a company called The Future. And The Future is on a mission to teach 1 billion people to earn a living doing what they love. But specifically, Chris focuses on creatives like himself. So you don't have to be a designer, but Chris has got an incredible way of explaining concepts and teaching people the business fundamentals that they need to really attract the kind of clients they want to be working with and to build a business that they can be proud of. Now, I'm lucky enough to have built a great relationship with Chris over the last few years and get to know him pretty well. And so why I'm excited about this conversation is because it allows me to share things with you and have conversations about things that maybe you haven't heard before on other platforms. So if you do follow Chris, if you follow their YouTube channel, or if you follow him on any other social platforms, hopefully what you'll get from today is something a little bit different. And we're going to be really deep diving into some topics. We're going to be talking about how to spot opportunities when they come knocking at your door. We're going to be talking about what courage actually is and how you really exercise that muscle. We're going to be talking about how to think about money. This is a really interesting conversation that I'm excited to share with you and I'm really confident that you're going to get a lot out of it. If you do get value from this conversation, I'm only going to ask you to do two things. Number one, is please hit the subscribe button. Number two is please share this episode with a friend or someone in your network that you think would find it valuable. That's all from me. Sit back and I hope you enjoy this conversation between myself and Chris Doe. Chris Doe, welcome to the Creative Courage podcast. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Matt. So you often introduce yourself as a loud introvert. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means and, and where it came from? Yes. A loud introvert means that I am one of the most painfully shy, awkward people that you ever meet in real life. But I've learned how to use content creation, the power that of design and writing to be able to compensate for that. Because I don't think the extroverts should have all the fun. 
And my previous business partner, Jose Caballera, is the classic opposite of me. He's the kind of person who can walk in barefoot, eating food, and just become fast friends with a room full of strangers, a place that he's not even invited to be. And we're just such a stark difference in terms of our personality, how we move about in the world. And because of him, he inspired me to start creating content. And in doing so, I've seem like an extrovert. I appear as if I'm an extrovert, but I'm really not. And this came to a point when I was talking to a bunch of my students when I was still teaching at Art Center. They're like, there's no way that you're an introvert. Just the way that you explode with energy and how much content we see from you. It wasn't until one of my students started working with me and saw me preparing for a public talk that I was doing, doing public speaking. And then she can see like, I'm so weird in the three weeks leading up to it that I'm, I'm not making eye contact with people. I'm not having conversations because I've been rewriting my talk over and over again, up until the night before in which I'm going to jump on an airplane. And then she finally said to me over dinner, oh my God, everything that you said about you is true. This is not an act. This is for real and is something that you struggle with. So I describe to people, I'm a loud introvert so that they understand that I leverage social media content creation and content marketing as a way to be involved in the conversation of people who act differently and behave differently than me. I love that. I think a lot of creatives can relate to that because a lot of creatives that I work with tell me that they are introverts. What's interesting is that they often use that as a reason not to put themselves out there. So can you just talk to me and anyone listening about what is the mindset shift that you have to make as an introvert to put yourself out into the world? You're never going to be able to change that part of you and how you build and lose energy. We know that during the pandemic, the extroverts became somewhat depressed and sad because they couldn't go out and introverts were thriving in this moment because we didn't have to go to the office. We didn't have to meet anybody. And we got a lot of work done. We also know that in this world, it seems like the people who are best known in any category industry have the best opportunities to get the lion's share of attention and opportunities. And so if you're an introvert and that's how you identify and orient your energy, does it mean that you're never allowed to come to the party that no one invited you? And the answer could be depends. So here's what we do. We can leverage how we think, how we create and use that and amplify our voice and our ideas through social media. So it's not a giant stretch from where you're at today as an introvert to be able to say, okay, write your thoughts. This doesn't include being around other people. So you can write your thoughts down and you can publish and then people will start to get to know you. One of the scariest things as an introvert is to walk in a room full of strangers. And so if you can think of it as your content being a host for you everywhere you go, that invisibly and silently and at scale introduces you to everyone so that you're no longer the stranger. These days when I go on stage, I tell people I'm such a weirdo in person that I want to make my content so good I don't actually have to develop social skills. And so we can work around this, you know. It doesn't have to be seen as a weakness. It can actually be a strength if you leverage it the right way. Yeah, it makes sense. And I find that fascinating. And I want to just go a layer deeper if, if I have your permission around that. Absolutely. So what I'm fascinated with is narrative and belief in relation to the actions people take. And what I just heard you say there is that you see social media and content as a tool to introduce yourself at scale and to avoid those uncomfortable conversations. What I find interesting is when I'm talking to a lot of creatives, 
they often imagine the scenario before it has occurred. And therefore, when they're sitting in front of the computer to write the post or to record the video, that's when they actually get that fear. And that's when they actually feel that resistance because they are worried about that post being perfect or they're worried about people judging them or they're worried about, you know, insert the fear. So talk to me about that. Talk to me about how you are able to create this content without the same level of fear or resistance that comes up when you walk into a room full of people. Some of the fear that comes around creating content has a lot to do with your expectations. Like, what is it that you expect to happen? So write a piece of content and no one comments or no one likes or reshares. Am I devastated? Am I emotionally just traumatized by it? And it has a lot to do with my expectations. So if I create for the act of creation alone with zero expectations, it's going to be a lot easier for me to create content. Like if you thought of it, like when you wrote in your, your journal or your diary, no one was meant to read it. So you don't have this same anxiety about writing. And you can think of writing as an act of reflecting on what it is that you know to help you articulate your thinking. And this is an important thing just for you as a human being in this human existence that we're all on, right? And so if you write and publish, then you're just adding one additional step. So if in the act of writing, just write for you, share your thoughts and feelings. You might have to edit it just a little bit because some thoughts are too raw and need to be phrased correctly for public consumption. But other than that, do that and then publish. And don't worry about whether or not it's liked or not. Just keep doing it just for you as a way to do personal development. Over time, you'll get better at it. And if you can stomach reading a few comments or responding to them, knowing very well that there can be praise coming at you and there could be radical criticism of you is how the internet works. And if you can brave that, then you'll start to learn about what resonates and what doesn't. And to me, this is super interesting. I've learned to switch off the emotional part in my brain to be able to read the comments, not for praise and affirmation, not for criticism and to feel bad about myself, but to see where people are confused. I'm collecting data. So I may be an odd duck here, but when people say, love you, love your content, that's not the kind of data I'm looking for. I appreciate that, but I'm looking for data where people say, Chris, you missed this point here, or I really love this because of this reason, and here's how it's impacted me personally. Or someone else who said, I hate this, this is stupid, and this is like the problem with society. Now, there's not a lot of positive to gain from that, except for to say that someone took the time to read your post in theory and to write, which means they care. And sometimes I think the biggest trolls are actually some of your biggest fans. And so you need to understand, like, why didn't this work for that person? How could I phrase this differently? And I just want to learn. So my intention is to learn and to share what it is that I think, not to seek validation from others because only I can validate myself. Mm, okay. So let me just play that back to you to make sure that I understood. Yeah. The first thing you talked about was intention, right? What is the intention of creating this content? And then the second thing you talked about was the response to that content and detaching and turning off that emotional part of your brain so that you don't have highs and lows when someone praises or someone criticizes what you do. Did I get that right? Yep. Okay. So you said something really interesting. You said, if you're brave enough to go and look at the comments or go and publish in spite of what might happen. 
And that's something I really want to explore because I think this is something that people overlook because we talk about these words bravery, or in this case, in the title of this podcast, what I call courage. And I think the courage is the gateway to so many things that people want in life. So just break down, like if you rewind back to the point before you had a following where you went from having this super successful agency and working with all these incredible clients to starting a YouTube channel, talk to me about like what was going on in your mind at that point that allowed you to have the courage or the bravery to take yourself from behind the scenes and bring yourself into the forefront where you could be exposed and criticized. Okay, happy to share that. If you ask me or, or most creatives to talk about the work, we're all pretty comfortable talking about the work. It's talking about ourselves, our opinions, our beliefs, our stories, what inspires us, what we're afraid of. That's the scary part. So if you ask me to talk about a project I worked on, I'll talk to you about that all day long. And that's easy. And this is the, if you ever go to design conferences, this is the majority of talks are oriented this way. They show their body of work. They talk about it to share a few anecdotes. And if they're good, they'll make you laugh or cry. Mostly it's just talking about the work they've done. We're pretty comfortable with that. And so if you ask me to do that, not a problem. And I wish I could tell you that I'm this super courageous and brave person. I'm not. I have all the fears that probably everybody has felt at one point and I'll articulate them to you now because I don't want to pretend it was, it was easy. It wasn't. Let's go through the list. Here's how I felt in the moment. No one cares about anything I have to say. If I'm not talking about the work, what the heck am I going to talk about? And am I ready for that kind of exposure? Because I still have a company to run. If I say things that are about my beliefs that then alienate customers and clients, this is going to negatively impact my business. So it feels like I'm risking a lot and there's nothing to gain here. I was not comfortable even introducing myself on camera, the act of speaking to a piece of glass with the fear and knowledge that whatever you say is going to be memorialized for all of time, that somebody can then later on look back seven, eight, 10, 12 years later and say, ha, see, see when you had this belief and thought and create those gotcha moments for you. And I'm like, shoot, caught red hand. I can't deny it. It's on tape. So all those things created a lot of resistance for me, losing customers, making a fool of myself. And also maybe the worst fear of all, which is no one gives an F about what you say. Like you said it and four people showed up and maybe worse than negative criticism is no criticism and no care. People are completely indifferent to your content. Now, the thing that got me across the threshold was my friend, the loud extrovert, who said to me, Chris, I know you don't want to do this, but I cannot make this content without you. So he validated me in that moment to say, I need you. You're my partner. You're my friend. We have to do this together. I will not do this without you. Of course he could do it without me. He just said this. And he said, I, I still don't know if I want to do this. He said, okay, look, here's the deal. You can just sit there, look pretty, and only speak when you're ready to, when you feel comfortable to say something. So if you watch those horrific first couple episodes, Jose has to introduce both of us because I can't even introduce myself. I'm stumbling over my own name, as crazy as that sounds. And if you've ever done this and you're an introvert, you'll know what I'm talking about. And he carries the show. He's like, we're going to talk about this. I'm joined by this. And I'm just sitting there really tight-lipped, hardly saying anything at all. And on occasion, when there's an opportunity for me to speak, I speak in the most brief ways. And then that's the end of the show. This act caused me physical pain. It's, I started to develop TMJ and I didn't realize what I was from. But the next day I woke up 
And my jaw was super sore. I was thinking, was I grinding my teeth all night? Where is this coming from? What's TMJ for people that don't know? I don't know what it stands for, but I can look it up. It's like some jaw thing. <laughs> okay. So here's what the temporal mandibular joints, <laughs> the two joints that connect your lower jaw to your skull. Okay. So like you're, you're feeling this like tension in your face, basically yeah. around your jaw and yeah. So you had like physical symptoms from it. Yeah. Because I was clenched so tight and so stiff because I was afraid of saying something and being very mindful of the words that I would say. Even like the way that my mouth moves and the way that I hear my own voice, it freaked me out. I'm like, I cannot sound that terrible. And I just, why do you look so gross when you speak? So I just sat there like really tight in the jaw. It took a couple episodes for me to realize there was a pattern here. Every time I would do a broadcast and every time the next day my mouth, my whole face would be sore. It's like, I got to get over this part. And I think you and I were, were of the same school where if you expose yourself to enough things, eventually the things that you're scared of will have less power over you. And so it's just the agreement to keep showing up and not giving up that then eventually something that's very painful becomes moderately painful, becomes irritating to, well, maybe it's not so bad now. Yeah. So that's the kind of exposure theory. And I think what I heard there is you had two things which were crucial elements. The first one was that you had somebody in your corner pushing you to do it. Like, I need you. Come on, Chris, we can do this. But the second thing is you also had a co-host in that person who was willing to carry some of that weight and give you that gradual exposure. And I totally get that. I think that is a great way to do things. And I think as coaches, and I don't know if you identify as a coach, but I know you coach people, but I think as coaches, like that is a really good method to actually get people to do things that they don't want to do. I just want to talk for a second to the people who inevitably will be listening to this, who don't have either of those things. And they're having an internal battle with themselves. And you know what this battle is like, because it's probably one of the reasons why you signed up recently to work with a personal trainer because when we tell ourselves we should be working out more or we know we should be doing certain things but we wake up um 7 a.m and we look outside and maybe it's cloudy and we're just not feeling great we have this kind of like internal conversation with ourselves and i think that's what a lot of people go through they hear the likes of you and me and all of these kind of influential people telling them that they need to put themselves out there more they need to share these stories they need to create marketing or not necessarily they need to but it would be very beneficial for their business if they did and i think there's this thing where they sit there in like this room almost in isolation and they've got these two conversations going on in their head they've got that i know i should be doing this thing but oh my god this feels so scary and then all of the things that you listed before are going through their head so i'm just curious like do you have any advice for those people or have you experienced this in maybe other areas of your life where you were able to push the scales to the action without having those two things of someone actually in your corner cheering you on and sharing some of the load? I think if you are waiting for conditions to be perfect, it'll never arrive. Uh, there's the expression that says, you don't need to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. And we all begin at the exact same place, taking our first awkward step and then eventually walking and then jogging and then running and then perhaps running a marathon or something like that. And you, you have to decide for yourself and there's nothing I can tell you 
that will push you across that threshold. You have to wake up one day and say, today's the day that things are going to be different about exercise, about my relationship, about how I show up in the world, about my job, about public speaking, whatever it is that you want. Because we live in a space of intention and desire, but as far as I can tell in this reality, we have to take action to achieve anything. If we want to remove people who are from our lives that are, are toxic to us, we have to take action. If we want to join groups that are going to empower us and validate us and lift us up, we have to take action. And so you may not have someone to validate you. You may not have a mentor to be quite literally by your side. But I don't think all of that was by accident, Matt. And let me explain why. I forgot to mention one thing. It's kind of an important part to the puzzle here. In 2014, when we first published our YouTube video, I was 42 years old. So I was sitting there thinking like, isn't this content game for people who are younger, who are better looking, who are more physically fit than me? What am I doing here? So I'm also creeping in with like ageism, like inflicted upon myself. And so we can sit here and make up a thousand reasons. And this is what people do. And you're right to put your finger on this, to say that, Everyone say, well, easy for you to say, Chris, easy for you to say, Matt, because you have this, this and that. Oh, you don't have an accent that people hate or you don't have a weird face or one weird eye or whatever. So there's always a reason. But those are just you placing bears in front of yourself to impede how you can express yourself in the way that gives you the most joy. I think that's kind of a really important thing to understand. OK, now, I don't think this is by yeah. accident. I'll tell you why. Because from the time in which I was I guess 19 when I started school, up until 42 years old, I met my, my former business partner in school. And so I have to move myself in a way that I can stand out from everyone else that's in school. And there's a lot of people in school. So we see each other as equals in school, both doing interesting but different things. And then me consistently working on it as a professional, directing commercials and music videos, having the space, the equipment, the manpower and the team to be able to produce video content. So I was bringing a lot of things to the table that would attract someone like him to say, like, you bring all the credentials, the know-how, the processes. I bring this other idea and the two of us can meet as masters. And this, these are terms that he would use a lot. Two masters coming together and practicing a new form of martial art. And I thought that was pretty lovely the way he would express that. So it wasn't like I was some idiot who had nothing to say and no experience to lean back on. I came in with something. I was missing lots of things, but then we complemented each other. So for right now, if you're not the person who attracts this kind of opportunity into your life, start looking at what you can do today that would then reveal that person in the future. But it begins with action today. 100%. Now, you don't need fancy equipment. You don't need a mentor. You can watch content and learn from other people because there's no shortage of people making content to teach you how to make content. It's super meta right now. And you could do this. You could watch them and you could follow their steps. And you could do it with help. You could do it on your own. Entirely up to you. But you do have to do something if this is what you want. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more. Let's change gears slightly because we talk a lot about content. And one of the things that my clients and some of the pro group have said to me before is I understand the importance of creating content but I don't want to kind of be this brand and I don't want to have all these videos like you know essentially I don't want to do what Chris and Matt are doing what I really want is I want this agency with great clients who respect me 
and pay me what I want to be paid and I want to be able to have holidays and spend time with my kids and like that is my mission like how do I do that so you are somebody who has a lot of credibility in the agency space based on your background I'm not going to go massively into it if people want to find out what that is they can google it and listen to the intro of this show but tell me about some times when you were running your agency when you did things that now when you look back on you realize they were the making of that agency i.e if you did them differently or if you hadn't showed up or hadn't challenged that client or hadn't put an extra zero on the end of that proposal you wouldn't have built blind to the point where you built it can you think of like one two maybe three instances like that absolutely so there are key defining moments to building a service design agency one of them is being at the right place at the right time in front of the right people and that has a lot to do with it and i don't want to discount that part i live in los angeles the entertainment capital of the world I went to school where some of the people that I went to school with, my classmates, wind up working in the industry that I didn't even know existed, who then wound up introducing me to people. So if you live in a very remote part of the world and you can move and you can be in a metropolitan area or be in the place where people like you do the things that you do, I always get your butt there because opportunity abounds. And there's a reason why I think it's so expensive to live in California or in Los Angeles or San Francisco because there's so much entrepreneurship and so many opportunities are being created on a daily basis. And that if you just last long enough in town, you're bound to bump into people who can then take you to the next level. So the first part is just being at the right place at the right time. This is 1995. I'm entering in the motion design field at the birthplace of the motion design space where there are so many companies here doing what it is that we do and so many clients, buyers of our services, that it's like you fishing in a pond where there's so many fish. It's much easier to establish yourself. So there are more opportunities, greater amount of demand than supply. So you can say, well, Chris, I can't travel back in time, but you have to look at where we are today and see where those opportunities are and be there. So if the opportunity is on Snapchat right now, and if you're not on Snapchat, well, then you've decided, I don't want to fish in in areas where it's much easier to catch a fish. That's up to you. But you have to realize you've made that decision. So I was able to meet people and work with people who gave me opportunities I did not earn relative to my portfolio at that time, which allowed me to learn from them and to slowly build up my portfolio and then to trade up for the next bigger opportunity. That's a very important piece of this puzzle. And you could call that luck. You can call it good timing or karma, whatever it is. But I got to tell you, the scientific part of it is you got to be at the right place at the right time and be in front of the right people. Okay. So just before we dive into the second part, if you keep those other couple in your head in, in the background. Yeah, I can. No problem. Just a really quick question around that. Is there a way, a methodology, a strategy to find opportunity? Yes, of course, I think there are. Well, first of all, you have to be able to recognize opportunity. And not everybody can do that. I've always dreamt of writing a play where I can, it's a one-man show, where I can act out like opportunity knocking at the door and me running, turning off the lights and hiding. And the analogy I like to make is, I used to live in a neighborhood where we got unsolicited door-to-door salespeople all the time. Even though they're not supposed to do that, they would ring the doorbell, right? And my wife's like, do not answer that door. Everybody be quiet. 
And it was like, this is so weird. Like we're prisoners in our own home. What if that were opportunity? It never is. You open the door. It's like, they want to sell you soap, shampoo, vacuum cleaners. They want to sell you all kinds of weird stuff. I'm like, oh no, I'm not interested. And they don't take no easily because they know their, their sales and their livelihood depends on them to not taking no. But I know that's like a funny way to look at it. But I think that's what's happening in the minds of a lot of creative people. Opportunity knocks. And like, no, turn off the lights. Everybody don't, don't make a sound. And it, Unfortunately, opportunity doesn't come dressed in a brightly colored suit with the words opportunity on it. It doesn't reach out with bars of gold. It usually looks like a problem. It looks like a challenge. Today, the opportunity we're talking about is why aren't you out there more writing content, sharing your thoughts, trying to teach others and trying to be of service to a greater community? And it looks like this is scary. That's a lot of work. People will criticize me. So you're like, that's not an opportunity. That's just work. That's an obstacle. But I think within every obstacle is the opportunity. Mm. Would it be fair to say then that opportunity lives on the other side of courage? <sighs> I wouldn't package it that way. Courage is involved in this formula. I know it's thematic to what you're talking about. I think opportunity lives on the other side of fear of obstacle, of difficulty. Mm. And you have to use courage. Courage is the ladder to overcome the obstacle. It's the shovel to dig yourself a new path, but I don't think it's an upside of courage. Okay, so let's rephrase that then. So yeah. opportunity lives on the other side of fear and the thing that you need to get from one side to the other is courage. Yeah, that's the bridge, it's the ladder, it's the rope, whatever it is you need. Okay, so we'll get to the other two in a minute, but I just want to go a little bit deeper on this. So can you think of some scenarios that you see frequently when working with creatives where there's obvious opportunity that you can see, but they don't see it because they're blocked by fear or some other emotion? Yeah, I'll tell you one, the biggest one is picking a niche. Mm. This is the one of the greatest problems, challenges, fears that people have. Uh, there are others, but they're afraid that by saying I stand for something, I want to work with a very specific industry to be super narrow and selective, to be a discriminating seller of services, that they'll eliminate so many other opportunities. So what they do is they do the opposite, which is they say, well, we do everything and we'll do anything for you and everything for you, which is counter to the result that they want. They don't know who to speak to. They don't know their pain points or challenges, their needs and their wants. And so they just put out a lot of generic stuff out there. And we know this is not the way to become attractive to, to companies and to clients. And so that fear that by, by choosing to do less but better, that they'll lose clients, will in fact, everything that you want will be on the other side of that. So it's what author Blair Enns often describes as the difficult business decision to pick a lane. What do you do? Who do you do it for? Why does it matter? Mm, okay. So niching is one. Choosing, making decisions. I've definitely experienced that. Are there any more? And then we'll move on to the, the other two kind of points that you remember from growing an agency. Yeah. The other fear that people have is to be able to say what they think about money, about schedules, about scope. What they do as creatives is we're conflict averse and we don't like tension. We don't like that. It feels weird to us. We want to create and it's hard to create when you're anxious and you feel tense. And so when it comes to having conversations about money, about scope and about timeline, we tend to try to kick that down the road to punt it, if you will. So we don't have to deal with it to the very end. 
And so emotionally, we tell ourselves a story like everything's going great. The clients love us. They, they love our work. But when it gets to the price, we kind of either blurt it out awkwardly at the end with no scaffolding towards that conversation. So it seems like, what? Why are we talking about money right now? And then we get a really bad reaction or the worst reaction of all, which is no reaction. And clients ghost on you all the time. Ghosting is a symptom of you not knowing how to have the money conversation. And it's something that happens to a lot of people in the creative space. So I say, look, if, and we already know this, the three biggest drivers to whether or not somebody's going to make a decision to work with you or not to work with you is around money or on schedule and around scope. Why wouldn't you want to have that conversation up front so that everybody can relax? We'll become friends once we know we can work together. It's not the other way around. I think I heard David C. Baker or Blair Enns talk about this. And he said, your goal in life isn't to become friends with your clients. It's the reward for having good business skills. So too many people are like, oh, I want them to like me. I want to build rapport. I want to know how their kids are doing. None of that is germane to the problem in which they're coming to you to solve. And so all of that is a distraction. We've been taught the wrong things by the wrong people. And so we perpetuate these same myths. And so we have a lot of anxiety around just saying what it is that we think. Mm, I love that. Okay. We might circle back to this, but I want to get to the other two things or however many there are that came up when I asked you about growing blind, those moments where when you look back in hindsight, you knew that they were pivotal moments for you. Yes. So the next thing is, and I'm sure you've defined what courage is, but I think people get courage all wrong. If you're a big person and you're trained in martial arts and one of your friends or strangers getting abused or beat up by somebody and you step in to circumvent that or to stop a bully, people are like, that's so courageous of you. No, it's not. You know you could beat the other person. You know you're trained to do this. It's no more courageous than pulling out a gun, shooting a, a, like a wounded animal. That's not courage. Courage is to act despite knowing that the outcome will be failure. That's what courage is. So that's when you're the skinny person, never been in a fight before, haven't been trained at anything but how to use like a, a Wacom tablet and Adobe Illustrator. When you actually put yourself in harm's way, uncertain of the outcome, more likely to be negative than positive, and you take action. So you have to have courage. So the second thing that I've learned in running my business and having success is the courage to say yes when you're not sure that it's going to work out. Okay, so first we have to recognize the obstacle is the opportunity. And then we have to put, to will ourselves to say yes when we're not sure. So here's the thing. Early on in my student life and in my professional life, I said yes to lots of things where I'm like, I'm not sure if this is good. I don't know if this is going to work out, but maybe, maybe not. I did work with, with students who didn't have money to pay me because I wanted to help them. But I was like, am I getting used here? Like, why am I putting their work ahead of mine? And when, when people would say, hey, would you like to meet this person? I'm like, I don't really want to drive across town and talk to a stranger about something. I don't know if this, I just said yes. So the beginning of your career, you need to say yes way more than you say no. And towards the middle part of your career, you have to say no way more than you say yes. I believe this is the Blair Ends concept as well. So here I am in Los Angeles, a little wet behind my ears, just out of school. Don't have much of a professional portfolio because no one has when you're out of school and just saying yes to everything. There was a young woman who was my office manager at that time and we were desperate for some advertising work. And 
her name is Patricia Fernandez and she was dating one of my friends. And so I gave her the job because she was dating my friend. I'm like, I'll hire you. She's a beautiful person, a beautiful soul. So she's like, I have a friend who works in advertising. Should we go and meet with them? And my initial reaction was, Patricia, like, who do you really know? In my mind, at least, like, who could you possibly know and connect me to that's going to really result in an opportunity? But I didn't say anything. I'm like, sure, let's go meet this person. So we go out to this very small agency. I would consider a second or third tier agency. And we meet with this woman. Her name's Karen Costello. And Karen's like, Let's see your portfolio. I put on portfolio. We go through some pieces. She doesn't ask a lot of questions. She nods. She goes, thanks for coming by. Close the portfolio. I leave. In my mind, I'm like, what an effing waste of time this was. What a waste of time. But I smiled. I'm like, eh, eh, eh. And even Patricia at that time was like, eh, kind of lukewarm, right, Chris? I'm like, it's okay. We can try. Well, so here's how the magic works, right? Months later, Karen is poached by a bigger agency, an up-and-coming agency, to work on this account, Mitsubishi Motors, and they have some dealer spots. So she reaches out and says, hey, Chris, I remember your design, your typography. I'm like, oh my God, do you remember me? Oh my God, I'm so touched right now, right? And then she invites me to work on the project. I work on it. One thing leads to the other. We're doing all of their work for the dealer spots, and then they win the national account, and now we're doing national campaigns. And this changes the entire trajectory of our company because it's the old catch-22. I can't get a sales rep because we're not doing national work and I can't get national work unless I have a sales rep. So in this way, we kind of backdoor the whole thing, go from regional TV spots to national TV spots. And as soon as we did this, the reps, the sales reps that we needed, all of a sudden answered my calls and said, we'll sign you. They sign us and they start getting us work. That starts moving us in an entirely different direction. So let's rewind and recap here. A friend of mine said, hey, if you need somebody, you can hire my girlfriend. Okay, yes. I need help to be able to be vulnerable enough to say, we don't have enough advertising work. Does anybody know anybody? And she's like, I do. Going to that meeting and doing your very best and then just being patient enough to let everything else work itself out. And eventually it does. And this is the thing that saves our agency from becoming totally bankrupt without any clients because there was a period in which we had no work. Hmm. Okay. Let's talk about that because I know that that's a lot of people at various points in their journey. And there's the classic kind of diagram. I think Seth Godin talks about it, the dip. And people say, you know, like when you're in the the valley, there's there's two ways. This is where most people give up and you go down and this is where most people push through. But I think money is a really interesting thing and clients are a really interesting thing. So I, I don't know if you see this with your clients in, in the pro group and the boot camps that you do, but typically what I see is there's this kind of lull period where there's not enough work and we start getting fearful. We start worrying about where the next project's going to come from and some opportunities come along, but they're not ideal fit clients and in fact there's probably some red flags up front but the fear is setting in and so we start to make decisions from fear and we say yes to the projects that we probably shouldn't have said yes to or we know really aren't great fits and that helps with cash flow temporarily but in the long run it causes us way more problems and i won't list them all but you know some of them yourself how do we prevent ourselves from making decisions from a place of fear when it seems like the chips are down. It's hard to overcome that, I have to be honest with you. When you're behind on rent, 
and no one's returning your calls, it can be a very negative downward spiral and it can be very hard to climb out of it. I recently reflected on this because somebody had asked me a question similar to this before. It's like, how can you be so confident in doing what you do? How did you develop that kind of confidence? And I said, it's really simple. I live well below my means. I spent less than the amount of money I made. The biggest expense I had in early days of blind was a loft that I rented for $1,200 a month. And I knew that I could make several hundred dollars a day, like three, $400 a day. So within three days of work, I pretty much covered my living expenses and everything else was gravy. And by not spending more money than what I made, I created a cushion and the bigger cash I had saved up, the easier it was for me to say no and look for the right opportunities. But if you are married and you have children and you have to like provide for the family and your monthly nut is $5,000 or something like that, it could be very hard to be able to act with that kind of courage or confidence because you need it so much. We know that in negotiations, the side that needs it more has seeded the higher ground. We know that. And so if you can, and I recommend this to anybody, regardless of how old you are, to do your very best to live as modestly as possible, even if it means moving back in with parents and taking the bus or doing whatever it is you need to do to lower your living expenses such that uh, whatever money that you can make starts to become a cushion for you so that you can have that kind of courage to be able to make bold decisions and you can reverse this cycle. In America, at least, and I think this is an American phenomenon that's traveled throughout the world, is we start living on credit card debt. We aspire to have those cool sneakers and that jacket, the limited edition X, Y, and Z. And we will live in a tiny apartment somewhere and try to drive a fancy car with fancy clothes because that creates the temporary feeling of status and achievement when in fact it's the exact opposite. And we have too many influencers who flash what they've done, the private jets that they're on, only to discover in two years they're dead broke and they've been running a Ponzi scheme the entire time. So those markers for success create this false narrative in our mind that creates this internal pressure for us to spend more than what we make. So if you can just live extremely modestly, live like a monk, you'll create that kind of cushion. So then you can start to focus on what really matters, finding the right clients, spending money on the good things, which is personal development and upskilling so that you can then create a, even a greater cushion. So taking it back in 1995, I had very little expenses. I ate mostly fast food or groceries that I could buy at Costco, right? Very modestly, spent no money on any personal thing until I had enough cushion where I'm like, I'm gonna treat myself every once in a while. And to put it in context, I didn't go on vacation for five years. I delayed our honeymoon for over 10 years. And my partner, business and personal like relationship partner, understood the same goals. We didn't need to fall down any kind of uh, societal standards of how we're supposed to do this. And 10 years later, we went on a very beautiful honeymoon to Paris when we could afford it, when we can afford to stay in nice places and we had someone to take care of our children and the whole bit. It took that long. Mm. I agree with you, but I also want to challenge you. Please. And the reason I want to challenge you is because at the beginning of the conversation, you said you had this ability to turn off the emotional part of your brain that responds to negative and positive comments. And I think another way of saying that is you've trained yourself to not base your behavior and your decisions on external circumstances. And in a way, I believe, and I'm not in a similar position to a lot of people who have got 
kids and mortgages and all of these things that are much more real in terms of the consequences of finances not working out. So whoever's listening, please bear this viewpoint in mind. But I also do believe that in a way, if you constantly make financial decisions and your behavior changes based on the number in your bank account, that's almost the same as changing your behavior and changing your decisions based on whether you get loads of likes or no likes or, you know, it's an external versus internal thing. So I guess my question is, is there any merit in that? Is there any, now that you have money, do you ever still find yourself making financial decisions in a way that maybe limits you? Or do you see, I suppose a better question is, do you see other people like that you know you could help, that you know like if they join the pro group or came on a business boot camp or whatever, like they'd be able to get the skills and they'd be able to get the strategy to make more money. Mm. But they're in that mindset of, well, I don't have the money in my account right now. If I did, then I would come and do this thing, but I don't, so I can't do it. Mm. Let's, let's unpack this and you're probably going to help me think through this and let's see if I change my mind after this. I don't believe social mm. metrics that are the same as money in a bank account. We're talking about some imaginary a way of feeling about yourself versus like you have a real thing to pay every single month, whether you're single, married with kids or not. And that amount of money allows you to to live for a period of time without any new opportunities versus like no one's ever lived off a like, I don't think. But we can ride that emotional roller coaster up and down. So they're both markers and they're both measurements. But one is, I think, more imaginary and one is actually quite real. And somebody can argue with me money's a construct anyways. But it's a construct and an imagination that we all have agreed to, whereas social likes, engagement, popularity and authority building. We don't have a universal standard to be able to trade your your likes quite literally for money or for food or for shelter. True. Although let's just pause on that because let's unpack that for a second. Okay. Because there are people who are able to stay in fancy hotels, get really cool things, have zero money in their bank account, but 100,000 followers on Instagram and they can trade that social metric for physical things. So what, what do you think about that? Yeah, but it's not a universal currency that is accepted anywhere. Exactly, yeah. It's a barter system and it could work and it could not work. And this, we're seeing people go through this too, right? Where they used to rely on the ability to trade on exposure about mm -hmm. fame and authority. And then all of a sudden when the hotels and the restaurants have financial trouble with real money, what do they do? They're like, they canceled the deal. And then all these people are all of a sudden now with a currency that's not universally accepted. But I know if I have gold and if I have silver or I have cash, I can quite literally exchange it almost anywhere for whatever it is that I need to survive. To an extent, right? So I think the distinction to be made mm -hmm. is that you can trade it for survival elements. Like you can- I can trade it for a lot. Yeah, you can trade it for a lot. But here's an example. I was watching this program the other day about Dubai. Yeah. And there's like this hotel where- like this guy, like they wouldn't let him into the hotel. He drove up in a Lamborghini. The hotel wouldn't let him in because he didn't have an expensive enough number plate. So they didn't care about the car. They cared about the number plate. Sure. Right. In Dubai. So crazy, right? At the other end of the spectrum. And they just like didn't let him in. There are also hotels where it doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account or restaurants, you can't buy your way in. Okay. Like money does not get you that access. So I think we're kind of like talking at different levels, I guess. But let's pause there. I want to challenge your challenge. Yeah, go for it. Because you could say you could just spend the money to buy the license plate, which you can. You could totally buy that. So money does solve that problem too. 
And in order to be able to join a very exclusive club where it's about the network that you have versus the amount of uh, versus your net worth, you can actually buy your way into other relationships. Andrew Tate, a lot of people despise him, rightfully so. He said that I don't buy a Bugatti because I like the Bugatti, but the Bugatti gets me entree to meet certain types of people. If I vacation in a certain place, the likelihood of me meeting some kinds of people that I want to have relationships with. So money does not buy lots of things, but it buys a lot of things. Okay, it doesn't yeah, buy everything. Correct. So most of the problems that you've presented, money will solve. I'm not sitting here trying to make a, a case for capitalism, but I'm saying for quite a few bit of problems that you have, it will solve. It won't solve your relationship with your, your partner. It won't heal the, the damage you've done because you're, you're an absentee parent with your children. Unless you artificially enhance your own body, it's not going to improve your, your health because you have more money. You have to actually do something, but you can get a lot of help there. Yeah. Okay. So the fundamental thing that we need to agree on then is that the difference external versus external is the power that money has. We can agree on that. Yeah, right? I think so. And that's maybe why this like external internal thing is is important. I guess the reason that I'm the reason I'm really like pushing down on this mm-hmm. is some experiences that I've had coaching people yeah. and with some of my clients who are like going through the dip, they're going through the dark night of the soul and they're about to make that decision to not just throw in the towel, but maybe take on the client they really don't want to take or do the thing they really don't want to do, but it's like, I need the money. And I've just been able to coach them long enough to hold off and push through. And when you get out the other side, it's like magic. It's like fast forward three months and they have a completely different business. They're working with their dream clients. They're charging three times as much because they got to that point where they realized and this this has to be a very clear distinction, and there's probably some kind of caveat where I have to say here, like, this definitely isn't financial advice. But they realized, and for a lot of people, I think, would realize that if they didn't get that client or didn't pay that thing, it wouldn't actually be the end of the world because they have the resourcefulness. They have the ability to go and get the thing that they want. They're just not giving themselves the opportunity to do that. They are giving themselves essentially what I believe is the easy way out. I think the easy way out is saying yes to the nightmare client, just taking the thing because they haven't stretched their own boundaries, right? Like a little bit like when you go to the gym and you get pushed by that PT, you're like, holy shit, I didn't realize I was this strong. I didn't realize I could do this thing. So talk to me about that. Talk to me like, have you had any experiences like that? Or have you always thought about money in the way that you just described? Well, I think there's lots of things to unpack here. So we could spend the rest of our time talking about this, just to make sure we're clear. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't want people okay. walking away getting upset at me or you because we haven't articulated our thinking clearly enough, right? Okay, yeah. I don't think what you're saying is different than what I'm saying. If your client was in a position where money wasn't the main driver of their decisions, they'd be in a much freer place to say no, mm. right? I want you to put yourself in a position where you have the maximum amount of freedom and latitude to act upon your principles and your beliefs. So the first thing that you can do is just not to buy all that junk you don't need. And if you can do Agreed. that, you're going to create greater runway so that you can be more confident and say, you know what, Matt, you're right. I'm going to say no to this client. It's a poor fit. I'm going to get through the breakthrough on the other side. And it's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm not going to be out on the street on government programs. I'm not going to get into that dire state that would be like total failure for me. So we're in agreement there. Yeah, and I think that is the distinction, right? Because I think for a lot of people, when you really have that honest conversation, that isn't the reality for them. The reality is it's losing a lot of money or having to live 
a lifestyle that they have to dial back on. Like yeah. you said, you know, like, oh shit, we might have to get a worse car or move to a smaller apartment or whatever. Like the reality is they're not going to be on the street. And like, I guess that's kind of where I'm pushing on this okay. because I think a lot of people are making decisions mm. from a place of fear, but that fear isn't necessarily the reality. It's it's a construct. Right, I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just seeing if that's an experience that you've had or your clients. You know what that sounds like to me? Somebody doesn't have a good bookkeeper. They don't have a good snapshot of their finances. So their fear is actually based on an emotion that isn't real. So if you're like, let's go look at the books and let's literally quite figure, let's figure out what your living expenses are. Let's figure out how much cash you have saved up, how much unpaid invoices you have. And to reveal to them, you actually can survive for three and a half months given your current burn rate and no new clients. And you're acting as if you're going to run out of money tomorrow. This is just a complete mm. misread of the tea leaves. And the tea leaf says, this is really what's happening, but your fear of what's happening. And we have to demonstrate just a tiny little bit of compassion and empathy for people who are like this, because often they come from a scarcity background where perhaps they grew up poor, didn't have money. And so their parents didn't have a healthy relationship with how they spent money, how they saved money. And so they've had emotional and physical pain around money. And so their understanding of it is really skewed. Like my parents, uh, and even though I'm a first-generation immigrant refugee from Vietnam, I was too young to understand and process the amount of emotional trauma that my parents went through. So this very day, they continue to act as if they're poor. They're not poor. They live in a multi-million dollar home. They have tons of money saved up but they're the thriftiest people you're going to know. They're, like my dad loves to go to, to Costco or to shop at Target, whatever. He doesn't like to shop, but he doesn't want anything fancy because they came from that place where they had things, they had nothing, and that was too painful. So it's it's hard for me to say, mom, dad, you have to live it up. You have to spend money and, and your life is short and, and you can enjoy all these things. And you have 15 years, 25 years of runway longer than you're going to be alive. I can't say that to them because I haven't walked in those shoes. So you're talking about some deep psychological work that has to happen for someone to have this. But if they don't have a clear snapshot of their finances, they're going to be making poor decisions all the time. Okay, so we got like two things there. One is very practical, which is like, make sure you have a very clear snapshot of your finances. And then one is a little bit more psychological. And yeah, you know, just to be transparent with you, I can totally relate. And yeah. what was interesting for me is that I came from the other end of the spectrum and I couldn't work out why I had that mindset around money. So I'm an only child. I come from a middle-class family. I went to private school and I still like until about five or six years ago behaved as if like, if I got this decision wrong, I'm going to be on the street. And it's like, that wasn't the case. The case was that if I got this decision wrong, it was going to be embarrassing and I'd have to have my tail between my legs and I'd have to go back and live with my parents. And like, I didn't want to do that. Right. But when I actually started to go through that process of worst case scenario, and I think it was like, um, I think it was like a stoic thing that I read, Tim Ferriss, and where they practice poverty and they go out and they live as if all of their worst fears have come true. And when they realize that those fears aren't actually that bad, and they're probably way worse in their head than reality, they are able to start making decisions from a place of abundance because they realize that even if everything messes up, they're still alive, they still have friends, they still have their family, they still have all of these other great things in life that money can't buy you, right? Yeah, because I think it's a, a natural thing. It's almost instinctual for us to focus more on the things that we don't have versus things that we do have. 
if we can flip that in our mind, we would act more confident. We would be more joyful and in harmony with who we're supposed to be. And so we're, we're talking about some deep psychological belief systems that have to be taken down and reconstructed in such a way. I remember sitting at the dinner table with my wife and we're talking about something and I was describing this opportunity for her and she was like, oh my God, you invite so much work and stress into your life. It's just incredible. And she asked me just like with very empathetic eyes and said, is this what you want in your life? How do you manage all the risk? I said, honey, this is not risky at all. Like this isn't struggling. This is just opportunity. And she's just shocked. I said, because first of all, I know something. Unlike you who grew up in upper middle class, upper class, her, her, her father was a commercial pilot. They had lots of money, relatively speaking. And she went to private school and was able to shop at the expensive department stores. I grew up trying to like figure out how I can buy a pair of jeans. And that was going to be the three pieces of clothing I had for the entire year. And so I said to her, and I'm exaggerating here, we came from dirt, babe, and I'm okay going back to dirt. So if we lose everything that we've had and there's too many safeguards in place for that ever to happen, I'm 100% comfortable going right back to selling stuff on the street if I have to, because I've done that myself. And to know that you can go back to zero and be okay with that gives you a lot of courage. So none of this is risky to me. But for a person who doesn't take risks, who comes from means, the amount of risk that you take can feel amplified because your baseline was so high to begin with. My baseline was poor immigrant, financial government assistance, don't speak the language, don't understand the culture, working at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. If we were there, we can come back to that. I have no problem. I'm not saying I want to go back there, but we can. Yeah. I love that. So you kind of know the reality. Yeah, that could probably explain a little bit. It's like making peace with the demon, right? It's like you are okay. You're at peace with the thing that most people fear the most. And I think that is such a powerful frame to come from when you're making decisions. I think so. You make decisions that other people won't make because they haven't met the demon. They haven't you know, slept in the same bed with it. They haven't tossed and turned with it. Like they want to keep it as far at arm's length as possible and there's a whole conversation there around shadow and everything but we won't get into it chris i appreciate we've we've kind of we're coming up to the hour i've got some kind of quick fire questions that i would would love to just throw at you if okay. that's all right one yeah. of the things that i've done with this podcast is i'm kind of building it with a, a community so i've got a small community of people who are kind of helping me shape the podcast decide on the guests and things like that so i asked the community like do you have any questions for chris and what's interesting is carrie actually asked dobot what i should ask you so I've got one question from Dobot and I got a couple of questions from the community. So the question that I I liked quite a lot from from Dobot was this one. So Dobot says you've built a successful career by challenging some conventional wisdom. Can you share an instance where going against the grain didn't work out as expected and what did you learn from that? Damn, Dobot's messing me up right now. <laughs> That question, it takes you on like many twists and turns. Go against the grain, but didn't work out. So, yeah. shoot. So I have to think of a failure now. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, I have one. But it's easier for me to talk about failure than a time in which I made a bold move and it didn't work because usually my bold moves work out. It's just kind of like a whole ethos I'm, I'm living in, right? Yeah, so there must be a bold move that didn't work out. Yes, there are bold moves. I don't know. All right. 
it goes with conventional wisdom, unfortunately. So I'll just tell you, because the biggest failure I've had in my life, okay, number one is our sales reps representing us from East, Midwest to West Coast and, and abroad said, we have to have a New York office. Because in order to get access to agencies who are looking for this kind of work, you need to be you have to have a New York address. So for many years in false starts, we started a New York office, moved offices, was in a co-working space. And it's just, uh, it was just really tricky. And so we invested a lot of money into building a New York office and we staffed it up with the team. And the New York office did work, but it, it was such a different group of people because no one on our team from LA wanted to relocate to New York. And so it was almost like we're outsourcing our core competency. And that's a rule that you learn painfully. You cannot do that. So if I or a key artist, designer, director did not want to move and establish our beachfront out in New York, it was going to be a totally different DNA. And it was. It was a different culture. It was just two offices that shared a name. And so we did that for years. I don't know exactly how much money we lost in that endeavor, but eventually we had to just say, you know what? We just need to do what we need to do in LA. And if they don't want to work with us, no problem. And it turned out that most of the work that New York was getting was just through our company, not because we had a New York address. We didn't pick up anything that we're supposed to pick up specifically because we have a New York address. Today, those kinds of questions are completely irrelevant because as we're becoming way more accustomed to working on a global stage, talking to people on Zoom, this is not an issue at all. So that was a colossal failure. And it caused a lot of emotional pain for everyone that was attached to that New York office because it seemed arbitrary that one day I just said, you guys, I'm shutting the office down. It's not working because it wasn't a thing where I could just do it piecemeal. It's like it's either all in or you're all out. We're paying for rent. We, we have a team. We have office manager. We have a creative director. It just didn't work. And that leads me to another thing. I've had to, on multiple occasions, lay off whole groups of people in my company for the survival of the rest of the company. And those have been the most emotionally scarring for me. And it still pains me to think about those moments where these are good people with high level skills for whatever reason, time and place, it didn't work for them anymore. And unfortunately, many of them that I've had to let go no longer wish to have a relationship with me on a friendly basis. So it's been rough. People take it very personally. Let's just dig into this just as we wrap up, because I think this is something I'm quite fascinated with at the moment. So take me back to that time when you knew you had to let these people go, but there must have been the resistance to have those conversations and the resistance to actually fire those people, even though you knew it was the right thing to do logically to keep the company afloat. I don't know if you can remember back that far or related to something that you do today, but like, what is the process that you go through in your mind, which gives you the resources to make those decisions, even though they suck emotionally and almost physically? I unfortunately have had to do this multiple times and I can recall each and every single one. And it does stir up some strong emotions within me. What is the question that you're asking there, Matt? So talk me through the process because you, yeah. you, everyone goes through this process where they're like, shit, I know I have to make this really uncomfortable decision. And maybe there's like some internal dialogue yeah. going on. How do you actually bring yourself? Like my question specifically is what do you say to yourself in your head and what do you focus on in order to make the decision that you know is right, but is extremely uncomfortable? Okay. 
There are different stages in which I have to do this. So each one of the internal dialogues is a little bit different. The first phase is of us about two years into our business when we lost our two biggest clients within 30 days of each other. And I knew then that this company is not going to last with five employees or however many people we were at that time. It's much easier to have the dialogue with everyone because everyone can see what's happened. We lost this entertainment client. We lost this beauty healthcare company. And I was very like, they know, we know we're not doing this work anymore. They've moved on without us. And so then I knew that the amount of cash I had relative to the overhead I was burning on a monthly basis, I just sat there with my friends from school and people uh, that had been coming into the office, basically my home for the last year and a half. I just told them, we're out of money, everybody. Unless a new client walks in the door, we cannot do this. And I'm telling you right now, all of you, I will have no work for you on this date. And it was like, say, two months from that date. So I said, everybody, you're free to do whatever it is that you want. Go your own way. I will pay you up into that period. And then I have no more money. And I encourage you to go look for work. And here's the weird thing. They all just kept showing up every single day up into that point, which was kind of wild. So, you know, it was a brutally emotionally painful thing, but it wasn't so bad because there was a real reason. Like we have no more money. And this wasn't some arbitrary thing where I'm just taking all the money and I'm just going to starve the employees. They knew that they came in, we'd play Pictionary, we'd go to lunch and we just did that every single day as if we we're on the Titanic and we're playing music until we go under. That one was a lot easier to do. The ones that are tougher to do are where we have money we're not financially bankrupt, but the team that we have isn't going to be the team that we need to get to the next level, okay? So throughout the, the history of our company, we've had to make some big changes because the market changes, the skill sets need to be different. And if I could fire myself, I'd fire myself, but I can't. So then this is where it gets really tough. This is where my wife has played a very important role in our company to be that sobering voice. And you need someone who has got that objective voice whispering in your ear. She's saying to me, is this the team that you need to have to be competitive moving forward. We can see now that the competition has caught up to us and surpassed us. And if you keep this team, are they going to get you there? And I'm sitting there thinking, financially, we're okay. We're falling behind. The work that we do is not as good as these other people. And so it's a very subjective call to make now. That was one of the hardest ones where I had to call in three or four of my friends and say, look, here's the problem. I got to let you go. We have to rebuild this company. It's not moving the direction I need it to. And they're thinking, well, why are you keeping those people? But why are you getting rid of me personally? And that hurt them mm. emotionally. With the exception yeah. of one person who I kept a relationship with, who then I rehired again uh, years down the line because uh, our company had changed to a point in which I could find a new use for this person. And they came back again. Uh, so those are really hard. And I got to tell you, I kept thinking it took me almost, I think, two weeks to decide and to work through how I'm going to have this conversation. Mm. And it was very, very hard. And is there anything that tipped you over the edge? Like, is there anything that tipped you over that? Do you remember the moment where you decided like, oh shit, I'm going to have to do this? We know this. Every time you're introduced to a new concept, it takes you a long time to first understand it, to be okay with it, and then to embrace it. And so I'm sure my wife was telling me about this for three months. And I'm like, I just want to deny that this is happening, that something else will turn around some, some miracle is going to present itself where I don't have to make difficult business decisions like this. But ultimately, like it's not trending in the right direction. We're not going to fix this company by just keep doing this. So that's at that point, which I'm like, for the long-term survival of this company, to be able to rebuild, I need to free up resources to hire new people. So unfortunately, I got to let these people go. So I remember just rehearsing in my mind for days how I'm going to say this. 
how I'm going to do this. So I have to visualize all of it. Like, who do we talk to? How much time in between each person? Do we do it all at once? We slowly bleed the company. How do we get them out the door? Like all that stuff had to be worked out. And it's a very stressful process to think through. I know people think this like, mm-hmm. oh, it's so easy and arbitrary for bosses of small companies to let people go. Maybe for some sociopaths it is, but for a creative person like myself, it took a tremendous toll on my psyche and my emotional well-being such that for days and weeks later, my wife had just had to console me. I said, I'm not going to the office. I just need to sit here by myself. Nobody talked to me. I have to just process this and just start to rebuild myself because it hurt. Mm. And do you just like take a deep breath and go, right, that's it. Let's do this. And you walk into that room. Like, is there anything else that you do to get yourself to follow through with that decision and not back out? The way that you do is because you scheduled this. So it's scheduled in advance. Mm. And then you've had to tell people that are going to remain what's going to happen and for them not to say anything. And so that they're prepared too. So what happened is I scheduled a meeting with every single person in the company and I did it in a weird way. And I'm not sure this is the best way. I would schedule it with somebody I'm not going to fire and then somebody I'm going to let go and then alternate between the two. So first, I'm not going to, here's the situation, Mary or Jake. Today, I've had to make a really tough decision that I've been dwelling for the last two months. In order for the company to move forward, we had to get rid of some people. Your job is safe. I just want to put that out there so you don't get all anxious, but I'm going to have to let go three or four people today. And I'm not going to tell you who it is, but you'll know at the end of the day. Okay. So like, okay. And they're like, okay, glad I made the cut. What do we need to do, boss? Let's get right. And I think you're making the right decision. So they leave and the next person comes in. There's a five minute gap. So they walk out. No one's the wiser. Next person walks in. I'm like, I give them the exact same speech, except for this part. It's like, and I'm so sorry, but I have to let you go. Today will be your last day. This is your compensation package. And I just wish you the very best. You shake hands with them if they were willing to shake your hand. They go out quite stunned. And I said, you know, feel free to grab your stuff and walk out because I don't want you walking around with this thing. You could say goodbye to whoever you want. Then they leave and then they hug people and then they leave. And it was just, it was brutal. I didn't have an HR person. I didn't have anyone guiding me through this process. It was brutal. Mm, it sounds brutal. It is brutal. But I appreciate you sharing that. And I, and I appreciate if that still kind of brings up some emotions for you. So last question, I want to make sure I get some from the community. The one, I'm going to try and combine two here, one from Georgia and one from Tatum. The premise of the question is essentially like, what are some of the biggest mindset shifts that you've had to make as a result of growing and scaling a business? And you don't have to go like deep into them, but just kind of high level, you know, I used to think that and now I think this or something of similar. I used to be quite frustrated with my team who couldn't do what I was doing quite easily. And through coaching, I figured out that that's an unrealistic expectation to be able to have them do what it is that I do and pay them only that amount of money. So the the idea is we have this executive skill that we can hire someone to work for us and have the exact same executive skills and decision-making process. I learned through my coach that I have to break down into discrete chunks what I expect each person to be able to do And the aggregate of all these people will equal more than what it is I'm able to do. So that was a valuable lesson in delegation and management and setting realistic expectations. I also had to have a big mindset shift to say, like, when bad things happen in the company, you have to be 100% accountable and responsible for everything that happens. One of his, his sayings to me was always, there are no victims here, just volunteers. Because if you don't like somebody that works here, you have to ask yourself who hired them, who allows them to, to persist here. So if you're not willing to, to correct that, let's stop complaining like we're a victim. 
Let's not send all this negative toxic energy out into the world. Either do something about it, be at peace with it, move on, figure it out. So those are two big mindset shifts. Yeah, love that. Okay, cool. That's all I'm going to push you on today because I know you're a busy man and your time is valuable. And I also only have the studio booked for another five minutes. (laughs) There's that issue. Yeah. If you enjoyed this, I'm sure we would get around to doing a part two at some point. And I know I always enjoy our conversations. So I hope you do too. If there is somebody on planet Earth who is listening to this podcast and has never heard of you before, miraculously somehow, how can people find out more about you and if they like what you've talked about today and want some more of your advice like where should they go there's many ways to find me the easiest thing that i'm going to point people to is go to thefuture.com the future is spelled without an e it's f-u-t-u-r so you can think of it as the futur thefuture.com i'm at the chris doe and doe spelled d-o i'm on almost every social platform if you enjoy this i encourage you to dig into the content i do a lot of stuff for free some stuff behind a paywall but if you get value from it use it grow be prosperous and i hope to see you somewhere in person or in one of our communities love it chris thank you so much for being a guest i've really enjoyed this conversation thanks so much